Are you happy? Happiness runs in a circular motion. Thought is like a little boat upon the sea. Everybody is a part of everything anyway. You can have everything if you let yourself be. Happiness runs, happiness runs. Hey, it's Seth. And this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about what that question even means. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Are you happy? Marketers can't get enough of that question because the pursuit of happiness, the freedom from pain, the place that status roles and affiliation fill, our confusion about what time frame happiness even exists in, this is the fuel for so much of the change and the pitch that marketers seek to make in our community and our culture. Let's start with a really great quote from a book called Shantaram. In it, the fictional character Carla says, happiness was invented by marketers to sell us something. So how does that even work? First, let's explore what the word polysemy means. P-O-L-Y-S-E-M-E from the Greek. Polysemy means words that can generally be understood to mean different things. We're not talking about homonyms. We're talking about words that can be interpreted differently by different people. So what does it mean to be hungry? Well, Some people are hungry because they haven't had a snack in 45 minutes. Some people are hungry because they're on the edge of starvation. I hope we can agree that those are different concepts. Well, when we think about happiness, we need to think about eudaimonia. Eudaimonia, also from the Greek, is the idea of a life well lived. The general understanding of how we believe we are situated in our life. The long-term view. To be happy with a sense of eudaimonia is very different from the toddler who is really unhappy because his or her brother got a cookie and they didn't. So they're different understandings. One of them is sort of a day trading. Am I up? Am I down? Who is next to me? Do they have more? What am I missing out on? FOMO and the rest of it. The other one is more of a spiritual understanding of groundedness, of what it means to be in community, what it means to have flow now and then. It's widely reported that happiness goes up with income for a while 
and then it stops going up. The problem with this wide reporting is that they don't really put their arms around what it even means to be happy. If we compare studies across countries, the Nordic countries tend to rank quite highly on the short-term day trading sort of happiness. The fact is not too many people are poking a stick in your eye if you are living with the extraordinary social net and cultural cohesion that one can find in certain Nordic situations. On the other hand, in many South American countries, people are scoring much higher on affect-based surveys of current life experience. Are you living a life that gives you a sense of happiness? They're different sorts of things. And so if you're someone with lots of money, one would think that you can buy whatever you need. And so your current experience should be off the charts. In fact, it's not. And the reason it's not is because marketers keep reminding you of the things you can't have, of the fact that money can't buy you a certain thing, certain levels of status, whatever. So we think about the person who gets nominated for an Academy Award and loses. Well, compared to all but six actors or actresses in the entire world, this person is at the top. But because they lost, their current experience is they're in tears because they didn't get what they wanted in that moment. And when we think about how to organize our lives, one of the things that we see is that as people are exposed to more retail options, as people are exposed to more advertising, advertising, which exists to make people feel momentarily sad until they buy something that will solve their problem, we've even called this retail therapy, the more you are exposed to this need to buy something to solve your problem, the less likely it is you're going to feel like you have enough. And if you don't feel like you have enough and you're regularly reminded that you don't have enough, it's not difficult to imagine that eudaimonia is going to be hard to find. So when we think about how we weave together culture and a safety net, and when we think about the work that marketers do to move things forward, we have to take a deep breath and say, why is it that people who have very little, people who are living in conditions that most of us couldn't even imagine. Why is happiness prevalent there? Does it mean that one has to be really poor to be happy? I don't think so. I think what's happening in situations where people don't have enough resources to have what we would consider adequate housing and adequate health care, there is a focus not on how do I get money to solve my problem today, but instead a focus on I get to live today just one time. How will I live a life that I am pleased to live even though I don't have money to buy my way forward? Years ago, I was in a little village near Bareilly, India, and I met somebody. I put his picture up in the show notes. He was the spiritual leader of this tiny community. They didn't have electricity. Everything this person owned fit into one carry-on bag. He didn't have a carry-on bag, but that's how much stuff he owned. And he was truly happy, happy in the long run. Was he aware that he could have had a cell phone? Was he aware that he could have had multiple changes of clothes or be able to go to town and buy whatever he wanted if he had had resources? Yes, he was aware of it. 
but there wasn't an economic incentive to keep reminding him of what he didn't have because he couldn't buy anything anyway. And so when we think about the interventions that marketers and other people make in a community, one thing that we know is that doing something like bringing solar lanterns or antibiotics or childcare to a community is going to increase both the day-to-day feeling of happiness and the long-term sense of well-being. But when we add multiple layers of you don't have what other people have, multiple layers of this is the dream to have this particular car, we're not actually creating a certain kind of happiness. What we're doing instead is creating problems, problems based on status, problems based on scarcity that can be solved by buying something. One of the reasons that our culture does that is the need to buy more things keeps industry going. The need to buy more things gets people off their butt and going to the factory to work those extra hours so they can buy more things. It creates the ratchet, the cycle, that fuels the industrial world we live in. But as Marshall Salins has written so brilliantly, back in the day when there were cavemen, life might have been much shorter. I couldn't have imagined living with cavities for years at a time. But at the same time, people didn't work that many hours, and I'm guessing they had the experience of eudaimonia quite often, because we have to get clear about what the words mean. So back to where this rant started, are you happy? Bad question because of polysemy, because many of us share different views of what it means to be happy. And so Disney World, Disney World almost never makes kids feel a sense of well-being. Disney World and other places like Disney World exist to create enormous amounts of stress. Stress because you can't go. Stress because you're about to go. Stress because you're here, but you don't have everything you want. Stress because you're in line and you're hoping to get to the next thing. And then that stress is relieved. Stress, relief, back and forth. That's a certain form of happiness. It's one that for many people is thrilling and can get us hooked on a cycle. But when we add it all up, it's not clear it leads to eudaimonia. And so, yes, it is possible to have both. It is possible to have both, but to do that, we're going to need a form of emotional hygiene. We're going to need to figure out as individuals, as families, and as a culture, what to isolate ourselves from. What is enough? How many hours on Facebook or Twitter add up to us feeling happy and everything beyond that ends up making us feel less happy. Kevin Kelly has written brilliantly about the Amish. The Amish are not actually anti-technology. The Amish have tons of technology. But what they have done for over 100 years is simple. When a new technology arises, they appoint someone from the community, the nerd in chief, and say to this person, go check out this new technology, go try it out, and come back to us and tell us whether you think it will lead to more community cohesion, whether you think that bringing that into our community will lead to happier days, happier months, and happier lives. And so the reason that the Amish keep a telephone 100 yards from the house 
in a little shack all by itself and not have cell phones for everybody is that's exactly the right distance to have a phone for certain purposes, but far enough away that you're not going to use it to separate yourself from the family that actually brings you pleasure. So when we think about technology and marketing, the questions we need to ask ourselves is, what does technology want? What does marketing want? And what they probably don't want is our long-term happiness. What they probably want is to grow, is to gain status and stature and have influence, even if it costs us eudaimonia. And I can't help but wonder, if we had come up with better names back in the day of Noah Webster and gotten rid of the word eudaimonia, which is hard to spell and hard to say, and been really clear about what kind of happiness is on offer, whether Carla in Shantaram would have said, happiness was invented by marketers to make us buy stuff because there probably needs to be a better word for that. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com slash go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. Some good questions this week, including one that's a little bit meta. So here we go. Hello, self. This is Woody Cullen from Indianapolis, Indiana. In the podcast, Time Keeps on Slipping, you talked about how we have saved time with modern conveniences, like working from home, and using processed vegetables. But we have used the time saved to buy more stuff and or to scroll online. I just spent six weeks in the Congo drilling water wells in remote villages. Those water wells will provide safe water and they will be closer to the village for women and girls who fetch the water. Some have estimated that closer water could save women and girls worldwide 200 million hours a year. Diabetes and obesity is on the rise throughout Africa at an alarming rate. Therefore, are we solving one problem but creating another problem with more deadly consequences? What would you suggest in conjunction with water wells being closer to the villages? Thank you for all your work. 
especially your audio books and this podcast. And thanks to Alex De Palma. Thank you for this, Woody, and for the work you're doing. This gives me a moment to talk about charity water. Here in the United States, toward the end of the year, people think about giving money to charity for tax-related reasons. Well, charity water is a cause I've been associated with for a long time. And if that's the way you're thinking right this minute, check them out at charitywater.org. With that said, I think that there is a really big difference between what happens when people who are short, really, really short on resources, get them, and what happens with people who have privilege who get them. That what we saw in the last 500 years on planet Earth is that when you give people enough resources to sustain their life, they invent great things. They invent medicines. They create orchestral symphonies. They communicate with other people in their community and make things better. And so I am all in favor of saving 200 million hours or more and giving people the dignity they need to get water to survive. The point of my rant earlier was, at some point, we end up having enough, and then we just use the time we saved to amuse ourselves. And all too often, we amuse ourselves to death, and we do it in a selfish way. So it was just a heads up to say thank you, Woody, for taking the time you are saving and using it to save the lives of people who need our help. Hey, Seth. This is Rich from New York. Love everything you're doing. I've listened to every episode so far and plan on continuing to do so. My question isn't about one particular episode, but a combination of, or may have been mentioned in a few of your notes. As I was running along the Hudson uh, in the fall, so there are no jet skis loudly riding by, which is nice. I was thinking about this idea where people say, has it ever been like this before, right? Have people been concerned about this? Has the world been in this shape? And most of the times the answer is, yeah, it has been. You can pull articles from the 20s or the 30s or the 40s and find people are talking about the same things. But my question is, do you think the difference is in readership? And that, yeah, the New York Times was talking about this 100 years ago, but what percentage of the country was actually reading it? And were they actually talking about it? And it feels like that's really the difference between maybe, if there is one, between today and, and before, is that now everybody knows everything. And that things that start maybe as an article in a newspaper get pulled to their extreme, posted on Facebook, Twitter, etc., where the people who may not have been reading the New York Times earlier are now reading Twitter and Facebook. And so now they're exposed to the same concerns people had back then. And that's what's really pulling it apart. Anyway, just a random thought. Appreciate everything you do. Thanks for this, Rich. It's pretty clear that all around us, things seem even in more disarray than we ever could have imagined. I heard Steven Pinker talking about his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, before it came out, to an audience of about 100 really well-informed people. His book is about the fact that the earth is safer. Most people are better off than ever before in human history, even if we count a pandemic. That there is more access to health care and, yes, to clean water 
on a per capita basis than ever before in human history, that there are fewer active wars on a per capita basis than ever. And when people hear this, they actually get upset. They get upset because it seems wrong. It seems like he's minimizing all the pain and suffering around us. So I think you've put your finger on part of it, which is there has always been news that in the early 1900s, there were dozens of daily newspapers in New York. But the difference is news has been amplified and weaponized and pushed in front of us. It has become a profit center. That when William Randolph Hearst helped start the Spanish-American War, he did it to make circulation go up. You give me the pictures, I'll give you the war. And now there are tens and tens of thousands of really talented people whose only job is to put us on edge, to push us, to need to swipe one more time just to make sure everything is okay. And by turning it into a profit center, by turning it into a way to manipulate people, what we are doing is shifting people's attention, sometimes for the better, like when we think about the folks that charity water benefits, and sometimes for the worse, when we use it simply to make ourselves unsettled about things we can't do anything about anyway. And caveat emptor, buyer beware. Figure out how you want to spend, because you're the buyer, your time, and try to avoid being the product. So yes, I'm very glad that I wasn't a particularly conscious human being during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm glad I was born after the Berlin blockade. I am relieved that it was a long time ago when the atrocities of World War II happened. That if we think about the Spanish flu, when people didn't even understand germ theory, ripped through our world, killing millions and millions of people. When we think about something like the Civil War, on and on, Really horrible things have happened to humanity since, I don't know, the opening of 2001, A Space Odyssey. But the fact remains that we have a chance to be resilient and to lean into the possibility of making things better. And part of that is choosing the media that we consume so that we actually use it as a fuel and a tool, not as something to bring us down. Peter Cook from Melbourne in Australia with a question about your request for questions. Notice that normally you say something like, as you know, I'd love to hear from you and here's how you can leave a question. And in your last episode, you said something like, as you know, I'd love to hear from you and I could really use some questions. And I noticed listening, that had a very different impact on me, that instead of it being do I have a question that I want an answer to? It was suddenly, oh, Seth actually needs some help. This is, he's asking for some help. He could use some more questions. And I was much more drawn to leave a question as I am doing. And what I was wondering is what was your thinking behind that from a marketing perspective? Was that a conscious thing? And did it have an impact? Was there any change in the metrics were, were there more questions left as a result? Thank you, as always, for everything you do. Thank you for this, Peter. Yes, indeed, I did change the phrasing. That was very alert of you. And yes, indeed, it tripled 
the number of questions that came in. I love hearing from people, but I don't like it if I get too many questions because then I can't answer them all and I feel bad about that. And I don't like it if I don't get enough questions because then I don't know what to say at the end of the show. And so far, it's been in a wonderful balance. But a month or so ago, there was a little bit of a drought. So I changed two words. And as you saw, yes, it led to more questions. So I have a tiny bit of a backlog. But yeah, I do love to hear from you. Visit akimbo.link. The show notes are there as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you going to face those fears? I'm not going to let you hide. You got to show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple. It sounds very commonsensical. But it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.